Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your, your host, as always, Phil Anides. I want to thank you for time. Take, oh, my God. All right, let me do it again. Three, two. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanadies, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. This is a really interesting show. We got game bread, Jorge Mastoval, on the show, and uh, you know he's been getting all over TV and AEW lately, so I feel like, you know... We're talking about a contemporary star, but there's some highs, some lows, some surprises on this show. It's a unique Strike Force card, so it'll be fun to talk about with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I want to welcome our listeners. Of course, Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that exists existed from 2006 until 2013. I can't believe. We're already at 2011 in the uh, the existence of this promotion. But on the episode today, we're going to be discussing Strikeforce Feijão versus Henderson, which took place on March 5th, 2011 at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio. In the main event, as you might have guessed it, Feijão Cavalcante, the newly minted Strikeforce light heavyweight champion, would put his title on the line against Dan Henderson. And then in the co-main event, the Strikeforce women's bantamweight title would be up for grabs as Marluz Kunin would put her belt on the line against Liz Carmouche. We'd also see team Tim Kennedy tangling with noted striker Melvin Manov, as well as the aforementioned Jorge Masvidal making his return to Strikeforce against rising star Billy Evangelista. I, I did want to mention this event would actually be held in conjunction with the Arnold Classic, which is a huge bodybuilding event that takes place every year in Columbus, Ohio. Also, this would be the very last Strikeforce event, event held before the promotion was bought by Zufa and the UFC. So this is truly 100% the end of an era in MMA. So we're going we're gonna to delve into all of that. We, of course, like to talk about the fallout from the previous Strikeforce uh, major event, which was Fedor versus Silva, which was where the commencement of the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix tournament took place. At that February 2011 event, five heavyweight fights took place with four of the five fights ending decisively in the first round. Only the main event would go longer, but not by much. Valentine Overeem quickly defeated Ray Cepho. Chad Griggs overwhelmed Jean Vellante. Shane Del Rosario survived some heavy shots from LeVar Johnson before submitting him. And Sergey Heritana violently knocked out Andre Arlovsky. And then in the main event, Fedor Emelianenko broke our hearts once again when he was brutalized into a doctor stoppage at the end of the second round by Antonio Bigfoot Silva, ending his run in the tournament. That was a very entertaining fight. It drew big, big ratings, big uh, ticket sales as well. Uh, but this had to be a disappointment to Scott Coker and the Strike Force Brass. You know, now they're you know the biggest signing, the the one that Dana couldn't get was one and two in their promotion, and so not not what they were hoping for, I'm sure at all. But let's get to the Fajal versus Henderson, the, the fight announcements, the, you know, talk about all that. It was expected that Tim Kennedy and Jason Mayhem Miller would actually lock horns, which would have completed a trilogy of fights between the two. Both of them had won one fight against the other. But Miller would be pulled and replaced by Luke Rockhold. However, much to Josh's chagrin, Rockhold himself would be replaced just a few days later <laughs> after the announcement of the fight. And devastating striker Melvin Manov would step in to create a classic striker versus grappler matchup. And Kennedy and Rockhold, Josh, you can, it's okay. They would eventually face off with the Strikeforce middleweight title on the line. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. A couple of things. Are you telling me right here, right now, Phil, that 
Luke Rockhold was unable to fight at this time because of yes. an inju- injury? It was not an injury. Actually. Oh, okay. No, it was not an injury. He was actually rebooked. They pulled him and put him into, a, a, I believe it was actually the title fight. They pulled him to to have him fight for the belt, if I remember correctly. But he was pulled. Now, I was shocked. I was like, I'm sure that he tripped over something and you know hurt his toe or whatever. And, and listeners, as you're listening to this, uh, Luke just pulled out of his latest UFC fight this last week as we record this um, due to a uh, back injury. So, I, I, you know, and Josh and I had a little bit of a text ex- exchange this week. And I was like, has any fighter in MMA history been injured more than, you know, Luke Rockhold? And, and he brought up Cain Velasquez, which is a very good point. You could also throw Dominic Cruz in there, another guy that's dealt yeah. with a lot, a lot of injuries. So. You know, it, it it it's you know as uh, Jim Ross would would say in in pro wrestling, you know, it ain't it ain't ballet, and <laughs> MMA is definitely not ballet, not for the weak at heart. So, no, no, I um, loved I loved in the heyday of the '90s when when hardcore wrestling was big, and Jr. would say, and there's somebody at home who's saying, oh, they know how to fall. <laughs> they know how to fall. Yeah. How do you learn to fall off a twenty foot ladder? ladder. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Good times. All right. Well, another fight that we would see a replacement uh, step into would involve the champion in Marlos Kunin. Originally, she was to defend her title against number one contender Misha Tate. However, Tate had to withdraw due to an actual injury. She injured her knee and Liz Carmouche would step in and Conan would uh, Kunin, excuse me, and Tate would face off a few months after this event. But Liz Carmouche, I mean, not really on the map when it came to MMA at this point. We'll talk a little bit more about her uh, as we get, you know, as we get to, into that fight. But she was a military veteran. She had served as an electrician on helicopters during three tours of Iraq uh, over a, a span of several years. And in, in her interview, she stated that she really felt like it gave her an edge against her opponents, their military experience, as she didn't fall victim to jitters as a lot would do and especially on short notice against the champion someone much much more ex- experienced but all that would be put to the test on short notice for sure it's, it's too bad they didn't teach her jujitsu in the military because hey, you're come on you're get, hey 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 you're, you're, you're spoiling the fight you're spoiling the fight <laughs> i'm sorry i just had to take my shot when i had yeah, the opportunity we'll, we'll get there all right, but Jorge Masvidal had signed a brand new contract with Strikeforce. He had previously uh, competed for Strikeforce, uh, and then more recently competed in Bellator. But now he was returning to the confines of the Hexagon with an eye towards a Strikeforce lightweight title shot. Uh, he'd been uh, he'd be battling the undefeated Billy Evangelista, who some saw as you know kind of overlooked within the Strikeforce uh, lightweight division, but. Uh, Jorge Masvidal, obviously a huge name now, not quite such a big name back then, uh, but this is a chance for him to, you know, kind of make a stamp and say, hey, I'm a player in this division. And then, of course, the main event would feature Fejal putting the 205-pound strap on the line against one of MMA's true legends, Dan Hendo Henderson, uh, the only fighter to simultaneously, simultaneously excuse me, hold two f- titles in pride. Uh, he would have another opportunity to win a, a title in Strikeforce after falling short in a middleweight title bid against then-champion Jake Shields. Definitely going to be a solid card here. There is a Challengers event to go over on February 18, 2011, less than a week after Fedor versus Silva. Strikeforce Challengers Beer Bomb versus Healy took place at the Cedar Park Center in Cedar Park, Texas. Not a lot of big names on this card, but there are a few. Ryan Couture, the son of MMA legend Randy the Natural Couture, got his second win in Strikeforce and MMA overall when he submitted Lee Higgins with a third-round rear naked choke. Also on the card, Carlo Prater submitted Brian Travers quickly with an, with an anaconda choke. 
And then in the main event, a former client of mine, Lyle Fancy Pants Beerbomb, lost a unanimous decision to Pat Healy, stunting his rise to con- contender status within Strike Force's lightweight division. All right, we are at the event itself. Strike Force Fajal versus Henderson took place on March 5th, 2011 at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio, in conjunction with the Arnold Classic. The event drew 7,123 fans to the venue, as well as an average viewing TV audience on showtime of 412,000. Uh, it should be noted this was a significant drop in both attendance and broadcast audience as the last Strike Force event drew an average of 741,000 viewers on showtime and over 11,000 fans to the arena. So a pretty significant drop in interest in this event based on the, uh, or in comparison to the previous Strike Force event. What the heck are they doing in Columbus, Ohio? I know you said it's in conjunction with the Arnold Classic, but um, it feels like, you know, not San Jose, not the Shark Tank, or not Nashville. Um, was there? I wonder if there's some financial benefit or. The, uh, my guess them? would be. Yeah. My guess would be the Arnold Classic because Scott Coker, you know, Playboy Mansion, uh, you know, the E3 game thing. Like he he liked to do stuff in conjunction with other events that were going on. So that would be my guess. But I, hey, you know, I've been to Columbus. I've been to. It was actually a, a church event at Columbus, and we had like 18,000 people in that arena. It's a big, huge arena, and it, you know you can fit, like I said, 18,000 people depending on you know what's going on. That's where the Columbus Blue Jackets play. So it doesn't sound like a big deal, but you know it's Ohio, and you know there's a, there's some big cities there, and Columbus is one of them. So you put that on, and and that seems to be a ready-made audience, like bodybuilders, guys that are into you know, guys in good shape, you know, there's a lot of fight fans and yeah, that's, that's, that's my guess. I don't know. I didn't see an interview with Coker that talked about it, but that, that was, that's my guess. Well, it's too bad. Luke Rockhold wasn't able to fight on this card. Cause we would have been able to settle it once and for all. Who's a bigger draw God or Luke Rockhold. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's something there's probably a subreddit, you know, thread somewhere where people are debating <laughs> that. I'm sure. I will, I will mention, I don't know if you noticed it, and I didn't put it in my notes, but I believe it was in the main event. They were kind of showing people in the crowd, and I think it was the military veterans. Um, oh, it was the co-main event, if I remember correctly, because, uh, like I said, Liz Carmouche was a veteran, and then Henderson, always a, a big-time you know, pro-Army guy, and then, of course, Tim Kennedy was there, and obviously uh, a very, very decorated military veteran. Uh, they, there was a guy there that was in the reboot of the um, of American Gladiators, like a blonde, good-looking guy. Like he's been on a ton. He was like a, another version of Fabio. Yeah. Like he's on a bunch of romance covers and stuff. And I have no idea what his name is, but he used to pose for like fitness magazines and stuff like that. I was like, he's an MMA. Like, what's he doing? And then I was like, oh yeah, Arnold Classic. He's probably there for that. And I was like, hey, we want to get you know, you want to go to the want to go to the fights. <laughs> so, anyways. <laughs> Uh, nothing to do with anything, but it just stuck out in my mind, and I have no idea what the guy's name is. All right, tragically, I'm sure both Josh, you and I are st- extremely upset about this, but Gus Johnson would not be available to commentate. He was calling an NCAA basketball game instead. Probably a better fit for him. Pat Militich would fill in, teaming up with, of course, Mara Ronaldo and Frank Shamrock. All right, undercard. Not a lot of uh, not a lot of big names on here, but a few recognizable names. Heavyweight bout Jason Freeman defeated Jason Riley via. Uh, Submission coming by way of strikes at 152 of the first round. 
Uh, oh, yeah, and that middleweight bout. Brian Rogers, I believe his nickname was The Predator. I believe he had a run in the UFC, if I remember correctly. He defeated Ian Rammel via TKO, come by, come by way of strikes at 423 of the first round. Then at another 185-pound bout, Mitch Whitesell defeated Mark Kofer via submission, come by way of guillotine at 355 of the first round. 170 pounds, John Kuner defeated J.P. Felty via submission, come by way of triangle at 431 of the second round. And then the two kind of big-name fights on this, George George Gerzel at lightweight defeated Billy Vaughn via submission, come by way of guillotine at 44 seconds of the first round. can almost guarantee you what happened there. I didn't see the fight, but Billy probably shot in. George locked up a guillotine, and that was it. And then another guy that I worked with, I, I don't know that I would call him a client of mine, but I worked with his manager a lot and used to do PR for his uh, his MMA Big Show promotion, which I believe was in Ohio uh, at 170 pounds. Roger Bowling defeated Josh Thornburg via unanimous decision. I remember Roger Bowling. He was he was a good prospect. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, good looking guy as yeah. well. And I he, remember he looked like a little bodybuilder. I mean, he yeah, a, he did. He yeah. he was very cut. Like he he definitely was in great shape and. I don't think he ever got uh, got a UFC run. He was in Strike Force for a while, and they were he had a, a like a trilogy of fights with Bobby Volker, I believe. One of them like ended like an eye poke, and I, I think they fought three times. And I really thought Roger was going to be a really big deal. Again, he was good looking. He had a really good story. He came from a really tough background, and uh, I believe it had some legal issues, and then like straightened out his life with, through MMA. And so I'm almost positive that that he I'm pretty sure that was a the story there and. He had won some some pretty decent regional bouts, and then, like I said, got signed to Strike Force. I was super excited, and I thought, man, you know, this guy's going to really go somewhere, and it just kind of never panned out. And I actually tried to look him up at uh, sometime in the last year to see if I could see what he's up to now. I didn't, couldn't find anything. But, anyways, all right, we're at the main card. 155 pounds. Jorge Masvidal defeated Billy v- Billy Evangelista via unanimous decision. Uh, this would be Masvidal's first fight for Strike Force since February 23rd of 2008 when he took a decision win over Ryan Healy. Since that time, he'd raised his profile by fighting in Sogoku in Japan and Bellator in the States. I didn't realize this little bit of trivia here, Josh. Don't know if you realized it either, but Gamebred fought on the very first Bellator card. Bellator 1 featured Jorge Masvidal. I did not know that. I didn't even know that Gamebred was in Strike Force. Until, or in, in, until, you mean, you mean in, in Strike Force or in Bellator? No, in Strike Force until like you know recently when you know he came up in our conversations and I think we've talked about it before. But but no, I mean I didn't realize you know to me he was a guy who emerged in the UFC. I didn't know he had that background in Bellator. Oh, also, he had yeah. he had a good run with Bodog, and then uh, he fought on the second Playboy Mansion show for Strike Force. And then I think he had a couple of fights on challenger cards and then, you know, just, he did shark fights. He did, uh, like I said, he did Sengoku and Bellator, but he was definitely a guy on the rise. I mean, he was 20 and six at this point, but part of Masvidal's thing, if you look at his record now, he's 36 and 15, like 36, 15 and one, like, it's not like a guy that runs through everybody. He's one of those guys that is pretty much always in entertaining fights. He's got a lot of highlights, but he loses a lot too. And he was on an uneven run. He had split his last six bouts and was coming off a decision loss to Paul Daly in Sharks, shark fights. So still 20 and six, but you know, he was uh, not, not, you know, not, not on a hot streak by any stretch of the imagination. Evangelista for his part though, definitely was on a hot streak. He was undefeated in MMA with an 11, Oh, and one record. And he was seven Oh, and one in strike force. I mean, we've never talked a ton about Evangelista. He's not a name that's remembered in MMA at all. But the dude was undefeated in Strike Force. I mean, that's that's a pretty big deal. 
very few of those fights had been against big name guys, but there was some solid wins there. Nam Fan, Harris Sarmiento, George Gurgel. I mean, those were, you know, those are those are good names, and and he beat them all. His thing was that he had a penchant for going to decisions, and so I think both these guys had an opportunity here to really, you know, kind of again, kind of plant their flag and say, all right, I'm a player in this division. But uh, you know, it was. It, you know, well, well, let's talk, let's not dive into the fight itself, but. Mark difference in size between these two. Uh, Jorge was uh, definitely a bigger guy. Uh, Billy was was shorter, uh, but it was a good back and forth opening round. Both fighters throwing a lot of strikes, getting a lot of uh, getting some takedowns, not a lot of takedowns, but getting takedowns. Tough to call it. Both fighters had the mo- moments, but I gave it to Gamebred ten nine. Yeah, I guess I was a little bit not impressed so far. Uh, they were kind of tentative. Now they were throwing punches. They had a lot of energy at the beginning, but. I, to me, it looked like two fighters who were trying to kind of fill each other out for most of the round. So, I don't know. I was just already thinking, good God, don't let this go the distance. Don't let this go the yeah. distance. I was already thinking that in the first round. Yeah, that first round was, it wasn't anything super exciting. I, I agree. They look pretty tentative. And Masvidal, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, he doesn't have the hair back then. And he just obviously looks a lot younger. I mean, this is 10 years ago, but... Uh, yeah, it was it was not shaping up to be a very entertaining fight. Uh, in the second round, Masvidal began to pick Evangelista apart on the feet as he was able to keep it keep it up, standing up, and avoid takedowns. There was some swelling around Evangelista's eye from Masvidal's punches. He began to showboat with his head movement later in the round. Definitely a 10-9 round for Masvidal. And then in the final round, Masvidal seemed content to kind of pick his spots, more show, showboating and avoiding. And the commentators were saying, like, he's not – he's fighting – you know, kind of defensive. He's not really going after it. And Evangelista, to his credit, he really did go after it in that last round, you know, realizing he was losing. Uh, but it wasn't enough. I'd give him the final round 10-9, but to me, Masvidal wins the card 29, or wins, wins the fight 29-28. Yeah, I, it's just one of my problems with Scott Coker and his booking, uh, now that we've looked at so many of his shows. But I don't really see a consistent pattern with how he would book these things. I think you need a kind of a hot match to start off where you're going to see a knockout or it's likely that you're going to see a knockout. It gets the crowd going, gets the TV audience going. It makes them want to stick with the show. And this was like just kind of a very tentative fight with some guys who were just trying not to lose. Now I know they're younger in their career, but I don't know. I just felt like you got to get some haymakers in there in that opening, opening television fight. So I was already kind of bummed thinking, uh-oh, it's going to be one of those shows. But, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Mas- Masvidal definitely, you know, he won. He, he was busier, and he showed more athleticism in the fight. Yeah, I mean, Morrow called it a defensive win for Masvidal, and I think that's very fair. I agreed with that. It just – I felt like Masvidal coming in was like, I need to get a win here, you know, by any means necessary, and it didn't seem like entertaining the crowd was his top priority at all, which I think has changed a lot, and that's why he makes the money that he makes now. But yeah, it it definitely wasn't. This is if you're going to skip, if you're going to watch this card, but you want to skip a fight, this is definitely the one to skip. But now signed with Strikeforce, Masvidal would be back three months after this card to face off with KJ Nunes. Ironically, Evangelista's next fight would also be with KJ Nunes, uh, though it would come at the tail end of 2011. You can probably guess who won Masvidal Nunes based on who Nunes fought after he fought Masvidal. So I'll let you, I'll let the listeners put two and two together there. All right, 185 pounds. Tim Kennedy defeated Melvin Manho via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 341 of the first round. 
Kennedy was 12 and three and he was coming off a contested unanimous decision title loss to Jacques Ray Souza the previous August. Uh, Kennedy felt like he'd won that fight. He was really motivated to get back to another title shot. Manov 24, eight and one was on a bad run in combat sports and he's as he'd lost three straight across MMA and kickboxing. Two of those losses came by knockout one by submission, which included that brutal KO loss to Robbie Lawler the previous January and one of the greatest comebacks in strike force history. Again, listeners, if you have not watched that fight, YouTube it, look it up on fight pass, Melvin Manhoff versus Robbie Lawler in strike force. It is crazy how Lawler's just get destroyed. And then he just suddenly turns the lights out. All right, let's get to the fight itself. Apparently at the fighter meetings, Kennedy told the commentators he'd had a dream that he'd knock Manhoff out with a slam takedown. Uh, so interesting, and maybe to try to fulfill that, as one would expect, Kennedy shot in early on. But Manhoff did a fantastic job defending. A short time later, Manhoff landed a leg kick that chopped Kennedy's leg out from underneath him. And, I mean, he he basically went to the mat, stood right back up. Uh, he also got followed up on with another brutal leg kick, however, and it was clear Kennedy had had enough. He did get a nice slam takedown, take which did not put Manhoff to sleep. But after some maneuvering and brutal punches on the mat, Kennedy was able to sink in the rear naked choke, getting the, the tap. Uh, just a very nice win for our military hero. Yeah, I thought this was a good win for Kennedy, a vintage win. One of the things about Tim Kennedy that I've always sort of observed, and at times it's bothered me, certainly in his title fights it bothered me, but he's very smart. He's a smart fighter and it shows inside the, the hexagon where he does what he needs to do to win. Uh, but at times it seemed as though he would kind of overanalyze things. This fight, it worked for him. You know, he said, this guy is kicking me. I mean, he tasted a couple of those kicks, <laughs> you know, and he was like, uh Oh, I've got to, you know, I'm not going to stand with this guy because it's going to be a painful night. And so then he went for the takedowns and the takedowns were not successful at first. But he kept at it, he adjusted, and uh, he was, you know, stronger, you know, used his weight better, and uh, he was smart. So he got him to the ground, was able to work that submission. Manoff is not good (laughs) on the ground. So, you know, I felt as though Tim Kennedy did what he needed to do because he was the better overall fighter. And one of the criticisms I have of him is that, you know, when he got into these big fights that were really close against guys who were arguably just as good as or better, he didn't really shift gears. He didn't switch layers. He switched levels. And so I say in this in this fight, his brain worked for him. You know, when he's fighting like a Luke Rockhold or something, when you got to figure it out, it doesn't. Well, I don't want to spoil, but it doesn't work. So that was a good, good win for Tim Kennedy. He should have won. You know, he, he was matched up well. And uh, it, was, it was a nice patriotic victory for him. And how about that promo? He cut? It was like yeah. Sergeant Slaughter. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 It was a, a Sergeant Slaughter slash uh, hacksaw Jim Duggan type, you know, pro go America uh, interview afterwards. And, you know, so there was some military veterans cage side and he saluted them and, you know, Hey crowd, let's hear it for our veterans. Like I, you know, it was great. And I, and I thought it was a very smart, f- smartly fought fight on his part. Um, you know, and yeah, I just, yeah, it was, I, it was a good win. It wasn't like, oh, spectacular, crazy, you know, and all this stuff, but it's just a workman, like very intelligently fought fight by Kennedy. Uh, but he would return in July for another high profile bout this time against ruthless Robbie Lawler, who he did essentially call out in the post fight very respectfully, but just said, you know, if they don't feel like I'm ready for another title shot, 
give me somebody in the top five and, and how about me and Robbie? And, uh, yeah, that's what he got. And it would be almost assured that the winner of that fight would get a title shot. Uh, but this would be it for no mercy. Melvin Manhoff and strike force. He is still active in MMA signed with Bellator coming off a TKO loss to Corey Anderson in November of two, of 2020. And based on, again, as we record this, Corey Anderson just blitzed, uh, Ryan Bader in Bellator. And I think in 51 seconds of the first round, uh, last night as we record this. So, uh, not, not a bad guy to lose to right now. So, you know, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing that says anything bad about Manhoff, but Man, 45 years old, still amaz- still looks amazing. Currently holds an MMA record of 32, 15, and 1. Uh, you got to say it's about, you know, hey, they always say power is the last thing to go, and Mel- Melvin Manhoff has got plenty of that. So he can he can turn your lights out no matter how old he is. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the kind of guy, like, obviously I would not want to fight any of these guys. Yeah. But, but I'm not oh. fighting, I don't want to fight that guy. I, I do. I ain't fighting that guy. No, I like. I'd rather get in there with Masvidal. I, yeah. you know, I yeah. No, there's. I ain't fighting Melvin Manhoff. I I've seen too many. I mean, he's he's again another Vanderlei Silva, you know, killer be killed type. Man, I'm gonna have to look that up. I wonder if they ever fought. But um, yeah, I I just don't. I God, he's very scary, dude. Like he just yeah. That I don't think they ever fought, man. Can you imagine what that kind of fight would have been like. Oh, oh, there's never. a EA Sports MMA version of them fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I I mean, two guys that were absolutely kill or be killed would be Vanderlei and, and Manhof. I mean, probably one of them would have died. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, we are at our co-main event, 135 pounds. Marluz Kunin defeated Liz Karmouche via submission, come by way of triangle at 129 in the fourth round to retain the Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight Championship. Josh, before we jump into all the details, I got to ask you, before you watch this bout in uh, in preparation for this, had you ever seen this fight before? Well, you know, one of the reasons I'm here, Phil, is more than my good looks. Like, I am a strike, <laughs> I am a Strikeforce historian, so I've seen every one of these fights. Now, my memory is a very different thing. Uh, okay. I do not. I remember this card. I do not remember this fight. I did not remember okay. it until I saw it. Um, I, if you told me Liz Carmouche and Marlos Conan fought, I'd say, no, they did it. But um, I remember watching this card and I remember Tim Kennedy, but maybe I, I skipped over this one. I, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't. There's. And so I'm different because I definitely have not seen. Uh, a, a, there's a lot of Strike Force cards we've watched that I have not seen. There are individual fights that I've seen. And then of course there are a bunch of cards that I was either there for or watched, but in general, if I wasn't there, I didn't watch it because if I wasn't physically there, I didn't watch it because I didn't have showtime. Like that's just the bottom line. I just, I didn't have showtime. So I do have some DVDs of strike force. I started buying them when they would come out and I still have those. So there's some that I saw after the fact, which is how I saw so much pride so, uh, you know, pride MMA because they, they, you could find the DVDs. They were readily available. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, I, I did get to see stuff after the fact, but there was very little strike force that I saw again, unless I was actually physically there. Um, I wouldn't, I didn't, I couldn't afford UFC pay-per-views. So I didn't watch, you know, many of those. It was, you know, I'd watch the ultimate fighter and, you know, try to catch free TV stuff, but yeah, I definitely never seen this fight before. Don't you so, know how to? Don't you know how to steal cable? And I do. I, I, you know, I'm like, I know I'm going to sound like a square here. And I'm not going to say I've never stolen anything, but when you like, like, dude, when you work, it, you depend on the business. Like when you work in MMA and like you depended on the business for your livelihood, like I did for a few years, I was like not cool with piracy. 
You know what yeah. I'm saying? Cause I'm yeah. like, and I'm not like, I, I don't think it's right. You know? Yes. Oh, they're not going to miss my 70 bucks and you know, stuff like that. While that's all very well and good. Like, that's not why you do that. Like you do it. Cause that's what it calls for. And if you don't, if you're not willing to pay it, then don't, then you don't get it. Like that's, that's all it is. So I, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a square when it comes to that. I'm not in favor of piracy. So again, I'm not going to say I've never watched anything pirated, but I saw final destination three, on a, uh, a a pirated DVD in like the year 2000 or 2001 or something like that, um, which was really funny because it was shot on a can like a, a handheld camera in like China or somewhere in Asia and like in a movie theater. So you could see people. And I was like yelling at the, Hey, sit down. Like, you know, not really, like, so yeah. any, anyways, um, well, you know, um, I, Mike Tyson moved from HBO uh, and it was a big thing when, when Showtime got his fights so when Showtime got Mike Tyson's contract, it became sort of a thing. So I, I, I'm going to backpedal and say I never stole cable, Phil. I was a Showtime uh, fan, and I was able to watch watch these shows because okay. Tyson had those had them on there. But you know, if I, I'm less concerned about that, if if I could give the seventy bucks to Luke Rockhold, that would be different. But you know, Dana White's going to take sixty of it, and, and Rockhold's <laughs> yeah. going to get a dollar. So right. you know, I'm, I, you're cheating the corporation here. But yeah. anyway, proceed. <laughs> All right. Well, so my point in bringing that up was asking if you'd ever seen it before was because this was just when I read, okay, Kunin defeats Carmouche, you know, in the fourth round. I'm thinking. Like, oh, you know, Kunin probably, like, Carmouche was early on in her career. I'm thinking, like, oh, she dominated this fight. And, oh, there was domination in this fight, but just not from the one I was expecting. So we'll get to that. But the champion, Marlis Kunin, she was 18-4 and four coming in. She had won the title from Sarah Kaufman with a brutal third-round armbar victory the previous October. Ironically, including that win, she was actually only 2-2 two and two in her last four fights, which included a knockout loss at 145 pounds, which was too big for her, uh, to Chris Cyborg. Now the title was on the line against a late replacement in Liz Carmouche. Uh, now, it's interesting to note, there are only, did you know, another piece of MMA trivia here, there are only two women that have beaten current UFC women's flyweight champion Valentina Shevank, she, uh, Shev, excuse me, Shevchenko in MMA. Amanda Nunez has beaten her twice, which Amanda Nunez fights at 135 and 145, so she's obviously much bigger. And Liz Carmouche is the only other fighter to beat Shevchenko in MMA so quite an achievement on her part and it was before this fight so and obviously Shevchenko was not who she is now so you know obviously different but Carmouche was undefeated at 6-0 and she'd beaten Jan Finney in her last bout uh, in strike force the Finney TKO had come at a strike force challengers card the previous November did Finney but ever beat anybody I, I feel yeah. like everybody beat Finney <laughs> was just beaten but up did on Finney her. ever win did she yes she did she had less <laughs> she had a sub 500 record but yes she she uh um she did she did win fights it just wasn't as often as she probably um you know w- would have hoped for but uh, anyway, of course, now I got to look up her record because that's going to drive me crazy. Well, you know, uh, she was cheering when Amanda Nunez took out Cyborg. You know she was. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure Finally. she was. I would have done that, too, if I just had one more round. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure that she was. But it's funny, though, because I always feel like Jan Finney's like this this um, barometer, you know, like this measuring stick. You know, she was a gatekeeper, she's a name. right? She's yeah. a gatekeeper. But yeah. I'd like to know who she actually beat. <laughs> All right, so she she last fought in 2019. She was uh, she ends her career 11 and 14. Janice Meyer, Alana Jones twice, Adriana Jenkins, Lisbeth Carrero, Brighton Hutton, Marissa Caldwell, 
Susie Smith, Janelle Marquez, Misty Blackwood, and Ricky Burnett. I've never heard of any of them. So um, I don't think so. She's lo- I hope she beats a fighter named Susie Smith. Yeah, she did beat Susie <laughs> Smith. I feel, like that was a fake, I feel like that's a fake name. Uh, she lost to Julie Kedzie <laughs> three times. Um, she lost to, to Misha Tate, Aaron Tuffell, uh, Shayna Baszler. Liz Carmouche, okay. as we mentioned, uh, Chris Cyborg, we covered that where she just got just destroyed. Um, she lost to Holly Holm all the way back in 2011, almost exactly a year ago as we record this. She also lost to Valentina Shevchenko, and that's it. And the, her last, like, six bouts were against um, ladies that I haven't heard of. But, yeah, she's so she lost every, you know, every fight against the name that she had. So, so. she's like a jobber. Pretty much. I mean, you know, in, in pro wrestling terms, she, she's absolutely yes. a jobber. She's like Steve Lombardi. She's like the Brooklyn Brawler. Yeah, there you go. There the you Brawler go. had a couple wins on primetime wrestling. Yes, he did. You know. Yes, he did. All right. So let's get let's get actually to the fight itself. But uh, so, you know, I'm thinking again, coming into this fight, watching this fight for the first time, I'm thinking Kunin is just I mean, she's one of the greats, one of the, the best women, you know, female MMA fighters of all time. And I'm thinking, OK, she's just going to walk through. Carmouche, but Carmouche looked really comfortable in the open opening round, despite the the obvious height and reach advantage of her opponent, and mostly a filling out process. Neither fighter really standing out, uh, but the two, you know, they seem to be kind of settling in for a lengthy battle. Felt like Carmouche was more aggressive, so I gave her uh, the first round ten nine, and then more aggression from the challenger early on in the second round, which almost cost her the fight. She shot in for a takedown. I think she f- started feeling confident and got caught in a tight guillotine and. Carmouche was able to withstand, but she was gritting her teeth. You could see she was in, in bad shape, and Kunin was using her, her height advantage to kind of hang her, uh, hang Carmouche, basically. And uh, But Carmouche uh, was able to deal with that, and she pushed Kunin down to the mat, got her head out in the process. Very close one for sure. Uh, but from top, top position, Carmouche landed a couple nice shots to the champ's face, and she also nicely avoided some submission attempts from Kunin. I mean, really good wrestling. For Carmouche, she later got north-south position, landed some very nice knees to the shoulder, and she just seemed to be getting more and more comfortable and more and more confident. I mean, she was all over Kunin, landed some pretty hard shots to the head and face once she got full mount, and the champ, she was getting beat up. And honestly, I've seen a referee stop a fight on less than what was going on in in this bout. I mean, she it, it didn't look like she was hurt too badly, talking about Kunin, but... Uh, she was definitely not intelligently defending herself. She just had her arms up and she had her like wing blocks as, uh, as, as Morrow called it. But, um, and then she would throw her long legs up and towards Carmouche trying to kind of get her into a sunset flip position. And Carmouche would avoid every single time, but she was like full mount and, and Kunin's supposed to be known for being a ground wizard and, but I, you know, I mean, I think you could have made a case for ten eight, but definitely ten nine Carmouche for sure in the second round. You know, I agree with you, Phil. I've seen fights stopped with much less damage than that. I mean, Carmouche was on her for a lot of shots. I mean, a good minute or so, and uh, you know, Conan wasn't out of it, but she wasn't really doing anything back. And and I mean, I guess it's okay to keep it going, but if they had stopped it, I would not have been surprised at all yeah Kermush was just dominating i think i think conan just had a little bit of a champion's advantage maybe in this round i, I just i just think she wasn't really hurt i think it was pretty odd because she was still moving and you know she wasn't like flattened out or anything like that on her belly like i just felt like it was 
she was trying to stop from getting hit and she wasn't getting hit enough to where she was really being damaged. So I, I think it was a case of that, but definitely Carmouche was winning the fight, dominating the fight. Kuna did better in the third round, but midway through she, the, the challenger got a, a nice trip takedown. Carmouche was clearly not overwhelmed by the moment. No jitters for her. She was putting on a great showing. She once again got full mount, was dropping some heavy shots from the top and, Despite her reputation, one of the best female fighters out there, Kunin just did not seem to have an intelligent answer for Carmouche's wrestling and ground and pound. And another 10 round, 10 9, and maybe even 10 8 round for the challenger. Yeah, again, I thought it could have been stopped, especially since we saw it in the round prior. Carmouche was not landing flush to the face. So I could see, like, okay, let it go. A lot of these shots are being blocked, but. But, have, you know, the round not end, it would have been really hard for Conan to get out of that position. God, I was praying for Liz Carmouche to put on some kind of submission hold. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I know that she's outmatched, but she just kept swinging and she couldn't do anything. It's like, you got to try something else. You can't, you're going to punch yourself out. You're going to be tired. And so that was a little bit surprising. Yeah. I think that that might've been the inexperience and we would definitely see the inexperience in the fourth round in one of um, just, I want to say it's one of the coolest transitions I've ever seen, but this was very cool. Uh, So Conan gets a tank down of her own, takes tops position. However, Carmouche. So she was able to get her off and then like kind of pushed her up. And so Conan was standing and Carmouche did like this, like sit up and rolled forward into a double leg takedown. Uh, and landed it was very nice i really like that unfortunately for her that was the beginning beginning of the end because kunin smartly trapped Carmouche's arm when she began to get taken down and was able to maneuver Carmouche into an arm triangle that she just couldn't get out of and she was forced to tap and it was a scott smith like comeback for the champion uh, but i'm i was so impressed with that that transition and just the poise of Conan to, you know, be getting beat up on. And then she gets a takedown and it gets, you know, essentially reversed, but just has the wherewithal to trap the arm and get Carmouche right where she wanted her. And Carmouche's stock, I mean, shot way, way up, just as the commentator said. Uh, but I, man, to be that close to winning the title in your seventh fight against one of the greats, uh, that just had to be a hugely disappointing loss. And they showed a lot of respect between the two of them. I mean, so much respect between the two of them afterwards. Uh, but to be just absolutely dominating the fight and then to lose like that, to get caught and lose like that just had to be really, really uh, just demoralizing for Carmouche and, you know, great comeback win for Conan. No question about it. Yeah, it was a tactical error. Uh, it was a mistake that she made. It was her inexperience. She had the five one and, you know, she calls herself the gorilla and, you know, girl, you're, you're, gorilla, girl, no, I'm so, I'm sorry, the, the, <laughs> the girl, Illa, I can't even say it, girl it's like, Illa. Uh, whatever, I'll leave that up to you, I'm, I'm like uh, Gus Johnson over here now, her, her nickname, <laughs> um, but it was so disappointing, I mean, this is like a Shale Sonnen almost level of like, oh my goodness, how are you ever yeah. going to go to sleep? I, you know what? After... I never thought about that, but that is very, very similar. Very similar. Yeah. The Chael Sonnen, the first Chael Sonnen-Anderson Silva fight. Sonnen is dominating. I, I watched, That was one of the UFC pay-per-views I actually bought and, and watching him just dominate. It's one of my all-time favorite fights and then get caught like that. Yeah, that very similar, man. I hadn't even thought about that. 
Yeah, yeah. So I was so crushed, you know, I felt so bad that this had to happen. And then watching it with this lens that I have now, 2021, and I thought, you know, she almost beat Ronda Rousey, too, in that big historic UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship when she had her in that neck crank. I mean, she was really close. And I just thought twice Carmouche was on the verge of something amazing here. And it and it didn't happen. Yeah. So. It, Very disappointing. In a lot of ways, this was Pete Carmouche because, again, she was 6-0 and coming into this, and I believe her record now is 15-7 and or 15-8. and So it's not like, like she's kind of gone 500 the rest of her career. So this was really one of the best performances of her career and, again, a chance to, to win the title. And, you know, she fell short, unfortunately. And, you know, as you said, she had other shots and it's just – but so a, a, a very good fighter, but, you know, just never really seemed to make it to that – uh, you know, that championship level. But uh, next for Kunin would be the about the about originally planned for this event as she would defend the title against Misha Tate in July. And Carmouche would be back in strike force on a challenger's card against former champion, Sarah Kaufman. That would be it for her inside the hexagon. She would move on to Invicta before heading over to the UFC for a long run. 37 years old. She's still fighting now with Bellator. And oh yeah, she holds a record of 16 and seven. I forgot that I'd put her, her record in here. So she's six and oh coming in. And so since, that loss put her to six and one. She's gone ten and five. So not, not, uh, not five hundred, but you know, not uh, or I'm sorry, ten and six. She's gone ten and six since that time. So, all right, we have arrived at the the main event. Two hundred and five pounds. Dan Henderson defeated Fejal Cavalcante via TKO, come by way of punches at fifty seconds of the third round to win the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Championship. Thoroughly enjoyed this fight. Uh, Fejal, the champ, was 10-2 and two coming in, had won the light heavyweight title via third-round TKO against King Mo Lawal the previous August. Prior to that, he'd gone 2-1 and one with strike force, which included wins over Antoine Britt and Aaron Rosa. Henderson, 26-8, and eight, had brutally knocked out Babalu Sobral a few months prior in December, riding the ship after his middleweight title loss to Jake Shields and earning himself this light heavyweight title shot. Now he had another chance to win a title and yet another top-level MMA promotion. Man, you could notice, and this was obvious pretty much every time Hendo would fight in the light heavyweight division, you know, definitely a a size difference between Henderson. You know, we saw this, and Feijal, we saw this a lot whenever he would fight at 205 pounds. You know, obviously he's going to be a smaller guy, but Feijal, clearly a bigger, much bigger guy. Uh, but as per usual, Hendo was loading up that right hand early on. You could see he was wanting to deliver the H-bomb, as it was called. And uh, funny on commentary that Morrow and Pat Militich were kind of arguing over who came up with the H-bomb, like both of them saying the other one did, which was kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, Hendo threw that a couple times, missed early on. But Feja, he was not playing around. He clipped Henderson with a massive right hand to the head, dropped Henderson, however, Hendo recovered immediately, stood back up, and muscled the Brazilian to the mat. Really great sequence. I really enjoyed that. That was a big right hand. Yeah, and yeah. I was surprised that Dan Henderson was able to get up. He must have been able to do it just on, on instinct. And he knows, holy cow, I'm going up against a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I better get up off the mat as quickly as possible. I was impressed. Uh, he, he bounced up and he was able to intimidate, kind of overpower Fei Zhao. And I was just thinking, 
How how intimidating must that be for Fajal? Like you hit this guy with your best shot, and here he is right back on top of you seconds later. I I bet it affected his confidence the rest of the fight. That's an interesting point. You know that, that definitely. Uh, but you could hear. Uh, speaking of guys that had uh, you know had had beaten Dan Henderson before, you could hear Anderson Silva's high pitched voice over the other corner. And uh, he's got that kind of soft you know high pitched voice, and you could definitely hear him shouting out to uh, to Fajal, but. Morrow mentioned that the last time Hendo fought in the nationwide arena in Columbus, he'd been submitted by the spider. So now he's looking to exercise some demons there for sure. <laughs> nationwide was not on. Yeah. Side. <laughs> Nationwide's <laughs> not on your side. Nice. All right. But after the ref stood things up, the two clinched against the cage, trading knees and positions until late in the round and close round, but I'd probably give it to Hendo 10, nine as he controlled more of it. Hendo was still headhunting with that right hand early on in the second. He did land some nice punches. The two clinched for a while. And, I mean, man, Hendo was a strong guy. I mean, he was pushing around Feijiao and got a trip takedown, but Feijiao was able to reverse a short time later, landing in Henderson's guard. And the refs did things up due to inactivity, and we were back on the feet. After some more heavy strikes thrown with little in the way of setting them up, the two-time Olympic wrestler and Henderson got another nice trip takedown. And that's where the round ended, 10-9 Hendo. I sort of felt like Feijal was losing the fight here mentally. He did not look confident. He kind of looked out of it. I mean, he was there, and he's he's so big. You can't help but think this guy could knock you out in one punch. But he didn't seem to want it as much as Henderson did. Henderson was very active and fully in, into this fight. And I just thought, you know, if I'm fighting Dan Henderson, and I'm, I'm a, you know, everybody's talking about my great jiu-jitsu skills, I'll take Dan Henderson down. I'm not going to try to stand with this guy. And I know that it's easier said than done, but I just think Feijal just kind of didn't have the right game plan in there to, to, to beat Dan Henderson. Um, he's trading with him and eventually, you know how that's going to end. Yeah. I believe Morrow said that Henderson had been submitted three times by black house, uh, fighters, which is that's, that's Feijal's team with Anderson Silva and the Noguera brothers at that time. So, uh, you know, yeah, it would make sense for him to to be looking for a submission, and he didn't. To your point, he did not. So, kind of a weird, a weird approach. I agree with you. But uh, at the start of the third, both Shamrock and Militich had it scored one round each, and but it wouldn't matter as we were hit with a blanket and you missed it finish. The forty year old Hendo finally landed that H bomb and turned Fajal's lights out. The champ kind of turned as he after he got hit and landed face first on the mat and Hendo mounted from behind and just I mean blasted him to the side of the head uh, from back mount and that was it it was over just like that and we had another signature Dan Henderson moment just an incredible incredible finish to this fight this was a weird knockout to me I watched the replay a few times I'm not sure what happened obviously Dan Henderson threw a punch Feijal went down and Dan Henderson jumped on him and it was over. I'm not sure if it was the first punch because one of the views, it doesn't look like it hits him that hard. Yeah. You, you don't see the jaw moving. You just sort of see him. So I surmise that he hit him. He did catch him. Feijal was like, I got to get away from this guy. And he turned his back and Henderson just jumped him. He just knocked him down. And then he gets him down face first and just clubs him with some right hands to the head. And I think that is probably what took out Feijal the most, even more so than the first shot, because I don't know. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a guy hit another guy that he spins the guy around, he jumps on his back 
and starts pounding him. It's usually that's not how you fall when you get knocked out. You don't get turned around on your face. Yeah. So I feel like like Fajal was running and Henderson just caught him. Um, this was not an impressive performance for me for Cavacante. Um, you know, he, he always, to me, just kind of fell short in these big fights. And I thought he was too big. He was too muscular. He looked slow. He didn't look like an MMA fighter in there to me. He looked like he was carrying too much weight. But what a redemption moment for, for Dan Henderson. Wins the, the championship. Wins the strike force crown. Anderson Silva's there. I mean, this is a significant moment. It's too bad UFC, you know, when, I'm sorry, it's too bad Strike Force fell under the UFC umbrella after this because... This was a good moment. Yeah, it, I, I agree with you on on the 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 knockout. It was weird. It definitely was weird. Uh, but those shots to the to the side of the head while Fajal was face down with his arms pinned underneath him. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like they they were gonna put put his lights out no matter what. And uh, huge moment for Dan Henderson. I mean, definitely at forty years old, gets another big time major title. You know, big big deal. And again as you pointed out, sort of a redemption moment against Anderson, Anderson Silva. So uh, good stuff, good stuff. But Fajal will be back later in the year against Yoel, uh, Yoel Romero in an intriguing matchup. Hendo, in his post-fight interview, mentioned that he wanted to break the curse and actually successfully defend the Strike Force light heavyweight title. Uh, ironically, Bobby Southworth, the original champ, was the only Strike Force uh, 205-pound champ to, to actually defend the belt. Babalu, Misasi, Kingmo, and now Fejia had all won the belt but not actually won a title defense. Unfortunately, despite what he said, Henderson would, would never actually defend the light heavyweight belt uh, as his next bout would be a his final inside the hexagon and it would be a main event heavyweight title, or sorry, heavyweight bout against Fedor, which I do not want to talk about. So, yeah. I don't know why you don't want to talk about it. It never happened. Yeah. Like the rock, yeah. like the rockers winning the tag team championship. Like it never happened. Yeah. Did they fight? Did they fight? No, no, that, that, no. that match never officially never happened. You're right. So, okay. So we'll make something up when we do the next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll just, we'll just burn <laughs> through it in 30 seconds. Um, but, uh, let's wrap things up here. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event, the disclosed, Fighter payroll was $439,500. Dan Henderson took home $250,000 against only $28,000 for the now former champion, Fajal. Uh, Marlis Kunin, the champion, somehow got only $10,000. Don't understand that. Uh, Carmouche received $5,000. Tim Kennedy got $50,000, k while Melvin Manhoff received ten k Jorge Masvidal got thirty k while Billy Evangelista got twenty. Uh, Gamebred gets paid a lot more than than that now, so he probably don't get out of bed for less than thirty k now. So, and if he ever goes to Bellator, he'll get paid even more. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, mostly entertaining card, you know. The co-main event and re- main events really delivered in my mind. Masvidal underwhelmed in the opening fight, but got the win. Tim Kennedy took home again a very cerebral win over Manov. Strikeforce had a new, you know, new women's star on its hands, it seemed, in Linz Karamouche. And then, you know, Strikeforce had a big-time, big-name champion in Dan Henderson. And nice to have, you know, a, U, a former UFC vet as your as your champion, uh, you know. So it was – I think that was a big deal. And I enjoyed the card. Josh, what, what did you think? It was a good main event. It's too bad it wasn't in San Jose. I think with, like, a Shark Tank, San Jose, Strikeforce, home-based crowd, it could have been a really – electric moment um it was nice to see him win the rest of the card was okay had some highlights obviously marlis conan i've said it before you know she's one of the best top three in my opinion greatest 
female MMA fighters of all time. She doesn't get the recognition, but she's really good. And uh, she showed it here. And uh, yeah, Liz Carmouche sort of showed, hey, she's somebody to be reckoned with. And um, Tim Kennedy, right? I mean, he had that incredible promo where he's just rallying up the crowd. And it's like a just a it's almost a military Fourth of July kind of moment, you know. So that that was really good. Um, by this time, the Strike Force feel of these shows had already changed. So we haven't really felt that sort of classic Strike Force Nick Diaz Kung Lee sort of like the 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 Scott Smiths like those people who were the core of what Strike Force was. We didn't those those days were kind of gone. Gilbert Melendez so. It's hard. I just feel like, you know, it's clear Strike Force was in transition here. I mean, think about this. You've got the ex UFC guy who couldn't win a title there anymore now in the main event of your show. It was it was very much like, well, what are, what are we watching here? Is this really Strike Force anymore? Or what kind of card is this? So I was kind of mixed. And uh, we're about, as you mentioned, to enter this, this whole new era here where. Cooker, I guess, would keep booking, but it would definitely be different sort of touch and feel going forward. Uh, well, as you were alluding to there, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, this was the last Strike Force event before the promotion was purchased from Scott Coker in the Silicon Valley Sports and Entertainment Group, which, by the way, also owned, uh, I think it still does, the Shark Tank. So, just and, and I believe a piece of the San Jose Sharks as well. Uh, yeah. But they were bought by the UFC's then parent company, Zufa. Apparently, the Carmouche uh, Kunin fight spiked the ratings higher than the Hendo Feja main event. Uh, so there was this question of, okay, well, Strike Force about to be owned by Zufa. You know, Dana was started being asked about female fights. He's not really a big fan of them. So what would happen to the women fighters in Strike Force? Lots of questions that would be asked uh, and eventually answered. Uh, but before we get to our upcoming episodes, I did want to encourage our listeners as we wrap things up here, if you haven't already. Go listen to my interview with former Strike Force matchmaker Rich Chow. It was such an insightful chat. I learned a lot from it, and I really enjoyed it. Most of the time, our interview episodes are around half an hour, and that one we went almost an hour, and it just it just was really good. It flowed, and I, I really I enjoyed hearing Rich talk about how he got introdu- introduced to Scott Coker, what it was like to book fights, uh, you know, in Strike Force, his reaction to the news that Strike Force was being acquired. Uh, what he's up today with Went to Warrior, which seems like a great program, so definitely worth a listen. But up next for Inside the Hexagon, you're going to hear my interview with one of the competitors from this card. This is a year in the making. I first reached out to him over a year ago, but Tim Kennedy uh, has – we've already recorded the interview, so you will hear it next week. I can promise you that. Uh, he chats with me about his win over Melvin Manhoff. He breaks down his his you know mindset, his, str- his strategy going into this bout, as well as his overall run. Uh, with Strike Force, we talk about his, his philosophy in life. There's so much to get to, so I'm 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 really excited about that, and I think you, you all will will enjoy it as well. So Phil, I noticed you didn't offer me this exclusive interview. You offer me Scott Smith, yes, and you take and you take Tim Kennedy. Yeah, well, you know I'm going to be listening to this one closely. I'm going to make sure you asked all the appropriate questions. Okay, if you did it, I'm going to have to get him on speed dial. Hey, we're so. trying to get Luke Rockhold for you. Okay. What was, what was it like to fight Luke Rockhold? That yeah, that would be your first question. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a, a fight that Rockhold won. I just didn't feel like it would be appropriate to be going after him with that one. But 
Did you, did you call him Mr. Kennedy? <laughs> no, I, it came to my mind though. Mr. No, it, it came to my mind. <laughs> he would have, he would have been like, Click, you know, he, could, he gonna... you know, he schooled me on military stuff because I called him, uh, I, I labeled him as an army ranger and he actually was not a ranger. He went to a ranger school. Uh, he was a green beret. So he, he kind of schooled me on that. And I, I was kind of, wow. All right. I, I just, you know, there's no real military in my family. Um, I, my grandfather served actually, but it was never like, we're not a military family at all. So I, there's a lot of that stuff. I don't, I have all the respect in the world for it, but don't necessarily understand it. And he kind of schooled me a little bit. So, uh, I feel like I've read stories that refer to him as an army ranger. I hope I wasn't I, one of the people I feel that like wrote I that. have too. I feel like I have too. You know, I do yeah. my research before I interview guys and, and I just, you know, I thought I found stuff that referred to him as an army ranger, but like I said, he, he schooled me on it. So uh, if you want to hear me get schooled, listen to listen to next week's episode. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he talks about a, a lot of stuff, so it's it's good. It's definitely not an hour long, but we he did give us some good time, and I appreciate that. But after that, we'll be covering Strike Force Diaz versus Daily, which features one of the greatest one round fights in Strike Force history. Also on that card, we saw three big returns as Strike Force lightweight champion Gilbert Melendez is back, as well as former Strike Force light heavyweight title holder Gegard Musasi and the Japanese ace submission artist Shinya Aoki. They all re-enter the hexagon, so lots to cover on that one. Uh, make sure you're following us on social media on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod is where you can find us. You can find me and reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. I would love to hear from you. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Breslow the business of sports betting podcast